Welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Robin McIntosh is a designer, author, and social impact entrepreneur. She has founded multiple companies and has worked across startups, brands, and business communities over the past decade with a focus on the arts, health, and wellness. Currently, she serves as co-founder and co-CEO of Work at Health, where she and her co-founder, Lisa McInlaw, developed a digital therapeutic program and precision prevention models for addiction recovery and wellness. Work It provides home-based detox and rehab services and guides individuals from high-risk substance use to a healthy, thriving lifestyle through a 90-day program of weekly interactive lessons, tailored content, and personalized interactions with coaches and clinicians. Its evidence-based program offers online and offline treatments for all three stages of addiction, prevention, treatment, and detox. To get started, it would be great if you could tell us more about your background, specifically your upbringing as a child of immigrants and how that influenced you to become an entrepreneur. Sure. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to have a conversation with you about this. It's one of my favorite topics. So gosh, my background. So I grew up the kid of two entrepreneurs. So I think that's framed a lot of my lore and who I am. And I know not everybody gets that experience, but they were entrepreneurs in different ways. So my mother is a graphic designer and my father is more commercial real estate business, that kind of thing. So two separate ways of going about being self-employed and one at a small scale, one at a large scale, one very creative, one not as creative, more finance driven. And to back up farther than that, I think, you know, I, my childhood was in Canada and uh, we grew up outside and um, I have two little sisters and we just played and created all day. And I think my love of world building and my love of creating new things, my love of kind of pushing limits and kind of engendering these new worlds, it started there, would start in my childhood. And I was really lucky to have it. So um, fast forward, my parents moved to Florida, actually, of all places. They started businesses there. And I think the United States for them represented a place where they could uh, have no limits. I think especially at that time, it was in the 80s. And, you know, I think Florida was booming with real estate. And, you know, the world was a different place back then. But I think they perceived it as this limitless place. And so we grew up with a lot of lore around being an entrepreneur. And we have a lot of family mottos like, be your own boss, always bet on yourself. All, all that kind of stuff, right? So a, a little like example is my sister, when she was in high school, you know, she worked at Dippin' Dots and she, we always had high school jobs, you know, and middle school jobs actually. And she worked at Dippin' Dots and my, she came home one day and she was telling my dad how, um, you know, the manager was not running it well, coming in late, leaving early, everything was kind of falling apart. And he said, well, why don't you... Um, take out a loan. Why don't you buy buy it? I'll help you. I'll, I'll co-sign the loan. And she was like, I don't want to buy Dippin' Dots, you know? Like, I think she was a little like, oh my goodness, like that's so extra. But uh, you know, I think we grew up with this world of possibility and courage and this feeling of 
this inversion of what you normally think. I think people sometimes think, oh, I go to a job, you know, especially after college and, you know, I get a job and then I get a paycheck and everything is stable. We grew up with sort of the inverse, this idea that like, you know, you're employing yourself, you're betting on yourself and that's going to provide you more stability and comfort in the long run. So I was lucky. I was really lucky. So I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then when I went to college, um, when I went to undergrad, I went to University of Michigan. I studied economics and creative writing. And I also, I think a part of being an entrepreneur in my journey, at least, is the interdisciplinary piece. I mean, I knew those two things were opposed. I mean, I'm not blind and I'm not living in a vacuum. Like people were always like, oh, that's a weird collection of hobbies or, or things that you are interested in. But I always thought both would deliver a great pathway to being self-employed and being my own agent. And I continue that throughout. So those, that's kind of my beginning. It would be great to learn a little bit about kind of what inspired you to create some of the companies that you did prior to work at. I never really considered another option other than starting my own business because of the way I grew up and because of what I saw. I always really wanted to be free. And I grew up with a really free childhood full of creativity and I wanted to be free. I didn't, I didn't want to answer to anyone else. And of course you always do, but I wanted to sort of control and set the agenda. My story is at the University of Michigan for undergrad. And then I went to uh, rehab and also in long-term recovery, hence work of health, which we'll get to in a second. But so I went to California for rehab and then I went back to school for grad school up in San Francisco and I studied design. And from there, I got involved in the startup community and tech and all of those things. And then I sort of was off to the races. But when I graduated, I had already, and this is getting to your questions later, but I had already taken a lot of jobs. Like I, any freelance job, anytime somebody said, hey, do you want to buy this logo for this thing or whatever? I'd say, yes, yes, yes. I always threw myself at any any opportunity that presented. So I, I had built a lot of courage through experience there. Um, so by the time I graduated, I had a couple of different options to go in-house and work somewhere. And I chose actually Wired Magazine because it was the last thing I hadn't done. So I worked at Wired for like six months. And I really, really struggled with working in a corporate environment. Wired's owned by Condé Nast. And they're a great company and great enterprise. But I really struggled with the hierarchy. I didn't quite understand the politics. It, the flip side of how I grew up is I never got to see people as agents of change entrepreneurs within large organizations, I'm really not very good at understanding the trajectory, right? Like I don't understand how to go to VP and then go to C-suite and then whatever. I don't know what people do after that ascend. (laughs) But um, so I really struggled there. And at the time um, I had been working at IDEO where I met my partner and my husband, you know, on the side while I was in school. And one of my old friends from there said, hey, we're just finishing up a really big project with the city of San Francisco. Why don't you um, do the brochure for them? Like they, they can't afford IDO anymore. You should do this, but there's one problem. To bid on a city project, you have to be a, a design firm. And so I called my best friend, Kate Harris, from art school. She had already been working with her own Kate Harris designs. I said, can you, can you be a design firm for a day with me? So I woke up really early. And I, you know, <laughs> I had to go to Wired at nine and I went over the, across the, the city to the city department and Kate met me there. And I remember she met me there and she was wearing this full on like DVF situation. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm wearing a plaid shirt. You know, I just remember thinking, whoa, like she really, she, she's bringing something different to this. 
And we met with the team there and I was just blown away by how she comported herself, how confident she was. And we were going down on this like rickety old elevator and it was kind of relieved it was over. And I said, okay, what do you want to bid? You know, like, what do you think we should charge them? And I think I said like a small amount, like in the low thousands, right? And she was like, oh, I want to bid four times that amount. We, she, we bid on the job as Siren. We got the job and that was my full first year salary at Wired. And I was like, bye Wired, I'm leaving. So, <laughs> so that's what I did. And that was an incredible experience for me because everybody says when you're in art school or I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I think everybody says, well, first you have to cut, you have to do it this way, right? You have to cut your teeth here. You have to learn the inside and then you leave and then you create your own company. Maybe when you're 35 or 45 or whatever, or, you know, 30, what, it doesn't really matter when, but there's always this idea of like you build up to it. And this, you know, I, I never did that. I never worked in-house at a design firm and I just created one one day. And it was so liberating. It reminded me of childhood of when you can just say, Hey, I want to build this fort. I'm building this fort. <laughs> you know, like, I want to do this. I'm doing this. You know, you don't second guess yourself as much. And so we did it, and it was so liberating and fun and joyous. And we just took it from there. And now Siren, I eventually branched off to do work at health because you know because of a myriad of other reasons. But Siren is just skyrocketing. It's an incredible company. Kate is still running it. She's doing amazing. She has employees, and they're you know, broaching crazy top line revenue. It's just amazing to see their growth. And so that's, that's how it all started. So I kind of got off path. I was wondering if we could elaborate a little bit more on the inspiration behind Work It Health. Sure. Yeah, of course. So Work It, so back to my story. Uh, I got sober when I was 20, 20 years old. So I was really young when I got sober and I had already been to eight different institutions, a collection of rehabs and detoxes and halfway houses, et cetera. So was lucky enough to have a family that pushed me towards rehab. I eventually went myself, you know, that was a really crazy time, obviously. And a lot of my parents, friends, not my parents, my friends have died of alcoholism and drug addiction, especially before the opioid epidemic, definitely after the opioid epidemic. And so it, it was always touching my life and I had always thought about addiction, but I had never really considered healthcare. I'm not a clinician and I'm not a, you know, I didn't just, I'm not a science person. I didn't go into that field for a reason. I like creativity and business and economics and the way things function and kind of systems. So public health, I think is more my speed, like more on a macro level, but uh, not like micro social work or micro therapy or whatever. So I didn't really even consider that a career path for me. So when we created Siren, one thing that we did was we partnered with different incubators in San Francisco. And one of the places we partnered with in an informal way was Rock Health, which incubated a lot of early digital health companies. And I was friends with Hallie Teco and some of the, the team, the founding team at Rock Health. And she gave us a lot of great work. But what was happening is during the day at Siren, we were working on you know, the self-driving cars of healthcare. We were working on diabetes interventions that felt so cutting edge and so relevant, so interesting. Um, we were working on different wearables. I developed like a whole product design for an oncology diagnosis app where you can kind of diagnose prostate cancer way before, you know, way upstream, all these amazing things. But at night, I was still going to AA meetings and those very much look like, you know, how they looked in the 1930s. You have 
a basement room and you have bad coffee and there's such a there's such a charm there especially for me it feels so warm and loving there but it also I saw so many people come in and come out and not want to expose themselves like not be at that level yet there's still this permanent idea that you have to hit rock bottom to get well so you see a lot of people relapse and a lot of death and then what you see also is a lot of people trying to get into treatment that can't and it's, it just got kind of crazy and it still is sort of alarming and crazy, but I think things are getting better. So what happened in 2015 is I just, I just wound down another project I was working on my second business, which was a yoga company um, that we eventually sold to yoga journals. So I kind of had a hole in my schedule it sounds crazy, but it's so area to say that I always like working on side projects, but we had all of these assets. And I asked Lisa, who I met in an AA meeting in 2009, Lisa is my co-founder. I eventually asked her to come over to my house and kind of brainstorm different ideas for what to do with this technology that we had built for this other reason, but you know, ultimately didn't get picked up. And so she came over and we were, we were batting things around. And I had known her for a really long time in recovery. So I had worked with her in a professional capacity and totally different thing, but Siren, she had hired Siren to work in education with her and all these different things. So we had worked together before. So we basically did like a design thinking session, like an IDEO inspired, like rapid prototype session for three hours at around my kitchen table. And we came up with all sorts of ideas, but we really probed, probed the problem of recovery and addiction in America. And what we came up with was this idea that, you know, of all the people who need treatment are diagnosed, let's say, there's like 20 million Americans diagnosed with substance use disorder, you know, nine out of 10 don't receive treatment. And so you ask yourself why, you know, why when addiction is running up the bill and, you know, why won't we spend so much money as a society on treatment? Like where, who, who's getting treatment and why aren't most people getting it? And we really boiled it down to two reasons. So one being affordability, it's really expensive and most most of the time health plans don't cover it. And two, um, access. So in its current modality, it's very difficult to receive treatment. It's hard to go away for 30 days. It's hard to come up with that money, but it's also, it's difficult to kind of stand up in the stream of your life and say, hey, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic, I'm going away for 30 days. I'll come back and I'll live in a halfway house. I mean, it's hard to maintain your college friends. <laughs> you make a move like that, you know, let alone being an adult. I, I was young when I got sober, obviously, but let alone being an adult when you have multiple kids, you may be holding down two jobs. It's just impossible. So anyway, so we, we started working there and said, how can we solve for this? And then, so six years later, I think we've done a pretty good job. I, I think we have a long way to go. But we basically created a digital treatment intervention all within the form of a, an app. And we did this before COVID and before the like before the pandemic, and we're all talking about telehealth. So our vision is to do it like kind of a gold standard treatment experience, meaning you get a wraparound care team, you get everything from your prescriptions to your drug testing to your therapy to your socialization and community needs covered. Um, so, so you get all of this in the form of a digital app that you can load on, you know, Starbucks Wi-Fi, and then it's affordable. And that means covered by health plans. I think the problem became too burning to really keep going with Siren and just say, this inequity is okay. It just became too far apart for me. And so I left Siren and I started working. 
wondering if you could tell us more about how you and Lisa leveraged your complementary skills to build Corkit from the ground up. Sure. So that that part's pretty easy. So Lisa comes from a nonprofit background and a clinical background. And she's always had those two things. So she always knew how to write grant applications, how to raise money, you know, like how to build clinical programs, the psych piece. And she likes science. She likes that part of things. And I come from a very clear creative and business background. So there, those two strengths kind of coming together, that's work it. And where we have holes, where we have weaknesses are where we don't have strengths, you know, and like accounting. So that's how we complement one another. I think the other thing unique about Lisa and I is that, of course, we're co-CEOs. This is something that enrages investors and probably like just completely enrages. It just seems to enrage. I mean, Lisa and I always laugh that we have this unique ability to like make people mad at us. Like we really piss people off. But we're like, why is everyone mad at us? But I think when you see two women at the top of an organization, you're always looking for some sort of divisive cat fight, right? Like people are always like, where's the discord? Or they might, you know, and a common one we get is like, who makes the decisions? How do you make decisions in your partnership? And you Google it, right? It's like the problem with co- all written by males. Um, but the problem with co-CEOs are that like one can't make a decision. The final block doesn't stop what, somewhere. But Lisa and I believe that, you know, if that worked so well, we wouldn't be in this like effing crisis, right? We're in this problem because of the way things have been done. We're mimicking this industrial revolution, forward assembly line way of doing things. And with a big CEO at the top, then the next guy, and then the next guy, you know, this art of war style of chain of command. And we're asking our teams, we're asking our patients to trust one another, to build with one another. You know, we need to build with one another. And I think it's fair. And I, I think that another thing is about the CEOs that they take all the blame and all the glory, but all the blame. It, they're fireable, if that makes sense. So Lisa and I consider the co-CEO archetype as protective against us as well. And then finally, you know, we believe that we're not duplicative. I think that's important in any partnership, but we believe that consensus really drives the best innovation. Like we have a rule where if one of us disagrees with something, we don't move forward. Like we have veto power, but we don't have a final decision power. Like I can't say, no, I'm the CEO, we're driving this forward. It's a really good ego check and it's a really good decision bias check. So that's how we complement one another and it's how we work. We control different teams that work at. And I think that's helpful as well. We don't just duly manage all eight teams that work at. I think it's great that you guys have such complementary skills. I guess it would be great to learn more about just your experience fundraising uh, together. Yeah, fundraising is tricky. <laughs> fundraising is tricky. And I think fundraising as a woman is tricky. You know, I saw the stat, I think it's 27% drop in female raising or woman raising. But um, so this is one area that it changes a lot with, with each round. At the beginning, it's all about people, right? At the beginning, you're just selling an investor on who you are, what you want to build, but who you are and, and if you're going to stay with it or not. They have to believe, usually your first idea isn't the best idea, at least that's the case with us. They have to believe that you can course correct your way to get there. So they do need to see kind of skills of resilience, if they don't know you, skills of resilience and grit and ingenuity, so much more so than resume or pedigree. I think those are the best investors. The worst investors just vote with the flock. You know, like they're just like, oh, are you doing crypto? Great. You know, are you doing 
blockchain for medicine, you know, I think the worst investors sort of just go with the the trends, but we haven't worked with many of those people. So it's, we've been lucky. And then I, for, for people listening or for people that are building their first ever pitch deck and all of those things, I think it's important to understand like how to tell a good story. So the first meeting, the last meeting, all of the meetings, you need to, um, part of the skill set that you want to sort of cultivate over time or build is like a competency is making the complex simple. You know, you want to kind of boil things down to their main idea. You should never have a pitch deck. I mean, I used to design pitch decks with Siren. So, so I have a lot of thoughts on how to build it, but really you want to have like a 10 to 15 page, probably a 10 page deck of kind of your initial problem, your initial solution, market size, et cetera. But you want one idea per page. That's really important that you don't wall of text it, <laughs> that you don't just throw a bunch of words at it or a bunch of graphs at it. I think that's really important. And that'll shine through as confidence with early investors. Later, it's more about diligence. Later, you know, where we are right now is more of a series C place or growth equity place where it's really about what we've done. It's not so much about the story. You know, I think Lisa and I both kind of missed the story, but it's not so much about the story anymore. It's about exactly what our cost of customer acquisition was back in Sunday on in July in 2018. <laughs> yeah. And then and, and another, I could talk about investors a lot, but another thing is remember, especially with your lead investor, remember that you will be with this person for a long time. And I think at the beginning of work it for us, we didn't quite understand our success. Like we just really wanted to build this and we really wanted to make it successful. Like we're definitely money motivated and business motivated, but we really wanted to build it. We didn't totally understand the cap table. So we kind of said, yeah, give us the cap table. And we were like, okay, that sounds good. The shares will convert here and there. But we didn't understand it like digit by digit, line by line. And really, 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 like really want to emphasize never outsource your thinking. Never outsource your thinking. That's a really important piece. When I finally started... (laughs) I wasn't a math major, you know, economics is different, but I wasn't a math major. So I, I was always intimidated by doing my own cap table and building up waterfall scenarios and all of these different things. But when I started finally doing it and doing it myself, really understanding things like shares and how my shares convert and priority and preferred and, and these kinds of different dynamics that happen, that's when I started being able to negotiate. Instead of just going to our lawyer and saying, can you give me this? Thanks. Can you give me this? Thanks. Or going to even Lisa and outsourcing my thinking to her. So that was a really huge deal. Like know your work and know what you're talking about and know your work. And, you know, think through if, if you sell your company for 500 million, what is that? Like you give 40% of your company away at seed round. What does that mean for that outcome? You'll have very, very little of your own company by that time. So that's really helpful. I guess another question in terms of investors, how how did you go about determining what the right time was to seek out seed funding? And how did you figure out who to reach out to and so forth when it came to work at? I think there's nothing not painful about that process. You know, <laughs> for an early entrepreneur, like if you're not embarrassed, you're not doing it right. That's what I used to say all the time. It's a process that's full of mistakes and embarrassing moments and strange hotels across the country. And, you know, it's it's just a non-graceful process, especially for women. Men, I think, have more open to them. They call a VC 
that looks like them, talks like them, has the same Stanford background, that VC will entertain them with a meeting, right? But Lisa and I both come from state schools. Like she went to university, University of Michigan as well. We had, I did Siren, which is completely different than a venture-backed healthcare startup. So we had to like knock and pound on a lot of doors. And then from there, nobody was really directing or kind of buddying us and saying, this is how you do it. We really just did a lot of internet researching. And um, we talked to a lot of people, but you have to find your own way. And what works for the typical startup founder does not work for us. You know, we've always run the business antithetical to a lot of things that typical startups do. For instance, the way we manage our cash flow is very different. It's very different. And now, thank goodness, like it's definitely paid off. We've seen a lot of competitors go by the wayside, but we've we've always been conservative with our cash. There's a family saying that's never borrowed from the future. And we've never borrowed from the future because for us, it's not a guarantee that we can just raise until the end of time, right? Like we have patients, we have customers, we have health plans that we work with. To leave them high and dry would be a disaster, not just for our own reputations or our business, but also for the people receiving the services at the end of the line. So I think it, you know, draws back to mission. It kind of traces back to your initial values. So yeah, I think just talk to as many people as possible, get as many meetings from the table as possible. Be smart about your pitch and course correct. Every single time you pitch, you should change it. You know, you should think about your audience, not change it significantly. I wouldn't, with a grain of salt, right? Like I would never shape just on, you know, your valuation that you're pitching and the amount you want to raise, like those two things should stay stable and just learn things, be open and listen and then ask a lot of questions. If you ask me when you're ready to raise money. I would say when you have some initial traction, put it off as long as possible. You want to build as much of the company as you can by yourself before you go to investors, because suddenly they'll have a say in everything you do. And it's really exhausting and it changes the company. It really does. But if you get the right people around the table, they'll also keep you accountable. You get a good board of directors. They will also sort of push you to the next great thing and bring in resources that you didn't know you needed and all of those things. But I would try to wait as long as you can, um, but not so long that you lose momentum, right? Like if you really need a paycheck, go out and raise money and always be talking to people, you know, always be talking. So... Do you have any best pieces of career advice that anyone's ever given you? Well, if we're talking early in career, I think take take on the hard projects, like take take on the jobs, right? Like if you're scared of something, just move towards it instead of away. Take contrary action in your life. That really helped me. The, my friends were like, no, I can't freelance because I'm not ready yet. I heard that a lot. Or I can't freelance because I don't have the time or I can't you know, join that. I don't want to do that project because that is too boring of an issue. We're in art school. So you would choose an issue, right? Like if you had like a poster project that you had to develop or some sort of intervention, you could, I chose eating disorders this one time. And my friend was like, why would you choose that? That's so hard. That's so thorny and rife with problems. But I think it's something about my personality, like kind of embracing the challenge. And, you know, I'm lucky in that I had a family that kind of was the wind at my back and said, that that's the need of life. Like that's where, that's where the real spirit of adventure comes is that kind of intellectual inquiry and running towards the hard. Robin, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I love everything that you brought to the table. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Any other pearls, advice, stories that you think in our last few minutes? Actually on our call, you had mentioned talking, I don't remember if it was your sister or your friend about 
kind of helping her, you know, put together like a financial model. Yeah, yeah the boom, boom, room. Yeah. The way we grew up, the way all of us grew up was like, was, you know, our dads were successful, our moms were creative. And that's why I like to say my mom was an entrepreneur as well, because she did have her own business, different scale, but different motivation, right? Like different goal. I, your goal doesn't always have to be to make money, you know, <laughs> to be at scale. Your goal can be absolutely creative motivation, et cetera. But that's the way we grew up. So Carmel, she, she loved this spin studio in Salt Lake City called, or uh, Salt Lake, I think, no, Park City, Utah, called the Boom Boom Room. Oh no, boom, baby, boom. <laughs> so it's basically going out of business because of COVID and she wanted to buy it. So the owner came to her and said, Carm, do you love boom, boom room or whatever? Um, boom, cycle, boom. Uh, you know, do you want to buy it? And she said, oh no, I don't know if I can. I, I don't know if I can. So she texted the family and everybody was like, no way. It's going out of business. No way. You know, and she called her dad and her dad was like, I don't think it's a good deal. So she, she, I said, Carmel, call me, just call me. And she goes, okay. And so she called me and she's like, I'm bummed. Dad doesn't think it's a good deal. I'm not going to pursue it. And I was like, well, did you look at the PL? Did you look at like their cash flow over the years? Like, did you do analysis of your own? And she's like, no, he's a businessman. She literally, he's a businessman. I'm not going to do it. And then again, it's outsourcing your thinking, right? Like there are those that know better. And then there's us. And then, there are no those that have pedigrees and access and all of these ideas. And then there's us. And so easily we're dissuaded by someone over here that, that has one opinion offhanded. And of course he's going to say that. Like, you know, she's not, she doesn't look like him. She's not a, a baby boomer. <laughs> like she's not a man of his generation. She doesn't have his same track. So anyway, so I called her and we had this like pump up call where I said, just look, like, I'll help you. She sent me the email. We were able to get all this information and she was able to size the company up. And I told her, I said, it's fine if you want to turn away from this, but you have an instinct and you have this glimmer of, of that you have this glimmer, right? Like this hope around this thing and you should follow it through and, and decide for yourself and not be scared of things like P&Ls or cash flows or projections or forecasts. Like it's, it's not scary. It's information. And, uh, and it was good. She's still sizing it up and sizing up the opportunity, but this is stuff that men do all the time. They really, there is no old ladies club. Like there's an old boys club. They text each other. They say, Hey, there's, there's a lot of trading in the background. There's a lot of tip swapping. And we feel so like, if you ask a woman what they make, they, it's, it's a rude question, right? Like they feel shy. There's this like pulling away. Um, but the free flow of information is so important in supporting women. Yeah. That's what people did for me. And that's, I try to be that voice for other women. Thank you all for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.